Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of AltMed. Um, here as always, my co-host Mitch Kurtz. And I got to say this particular episode, I think it's fair to say we've got our biggest guest on to date. No disrespect to any past guests that have been on the show, but this man that we're about to have on has been just one of the the pioneers in the cannabis space. Um, he's got a reputation that precedes him. And for those who are uninitiated to Shanti Baba, it is going to be our pleasure to help you get to know him over the next 45 minutes or so. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mr. Scott Blakey, aka Shanti Baba. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, pretty good. Pretty good intro. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not. Um, it's not every just day. Asking, asking in it at the moment. <laughs> so every day we've had such a high-profile cannabis geneticist just drop in for a chat. So uh, we're pretty pretty excited about this one. Um, as is often uh, the way we do things around here, we always just throw to our guests first to give a bit of an introduction and a bit of background how they got into cannabis. Um, I know you'll probably need to go back a few decades, but if you can cast your mind back to that, that'd be great. Okay. Um, yeah, I, my name's Scott Blakey. I've, um, I've studied at Melbourne University and each year I went probably to Asia, India, Thailand, Burma, all those places. So I established a, uh, a kind of a rapport with cannabis over the, the, the young years of studenthood. And, um, and I actually made me always feel like a better person. So I uh, followed that kind of hobby and uh, it landed me in Amsterdam in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that stage, we, uh, I met Ariane. We created a, a greenhouse seed company. And after that, there was the CBD crew and Mr. Nice Seed Bank, which I still currently owner of. And uh, I've been working with plant genetics. Basically, uh, that's my specialty in all of the those companies for the last <clears throat> 20, 30 something years um it wasn't a planned uh, occupation but uh it was something that uh, evolved i expect and uh, it's now looking like i might be able to come home to australia to do it because after 30 or 40 years it looks like it's almost accepted now down under so uh you know um that's, that's definitely that's, the the express <clears throat> version i would say of that history um yeah well I mean, we've got 45 minutes, so I've got a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> but Australia, actually, it's, is it funny for you to see it legalising up here because, uh, or down here rather, because, you know, growing up, I imagine it was very, very different kind of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I'm very proud to see it started to uh, go forward in Australia uh, after quite a lot of years of uh, didn't really move and, and everything to do with cannabis it was basically uh, um, sort of you know, criminal, and um, and a lot of people used to shun at the, the fact that there was some sort of medical component to cannabis. But uh, you know, Europe Europe pushed and pushed and pushed, and America, I suppose, with the, the country that broke the whole thing um, with the medical stuff uh, with the Dennis Perone in '96, and then it slowly has opened the door, you know, and. Uh, I, I suppose Australia, is, uh, I mean, all countries that have plenty of sun and stuff are a perfect prime real estate for cannabis industry. And, you know, there's a lot of people in Australia that have been using it, whether it's been legal or not for many years. So the reality is that many people can now move into the light and uh, do it properly and uh, know what they're using. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very big advocate for that sort of uh, honest uh, employment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I just wanted to ask about the, I guess, the climate and the the growing conditions that you observe in Australia. You talked about how you travelled through Asia and South America in the eighties, collecting seeds of of different local cannabis species. Are we talking land races, by the way, or some what? what? Uh, I, I tend to call them family land races because they've usually been in families and and uh, continue it on in some little small corner and, and they reproduce the seed every year. So after three or four generations of, of inbreeding, you basically you have a unique species, you know, with a, a, 
I wouldn't so far as call it a land race because there's been, a, you know, humans have been walking around uh, Silk Road for many years. And so the exchange of, of seed and, and other products have been going on and, and really uh, you'd have to go back to the dinosaurs to know what was really there then. But uh, so, I mean, you know, we're all on the shoulders of the person before us, but pretty much, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and did you see that even back in, you know, the 80s, people were experimenting, obviously not in the the legal current context of, you know, having the Commonwealth Office of Drug Control issue cultivation licenses. We're talking way back before then. Did you have um, instances where people were trying out, you know, oh, what if I do a hybrid, you know, with this strain from South America and this one from India? Were people was that a, a part of the scene that you remember before you left and, and went to Europe to pursue it, you know, more over there? Very big part of my scene because yeah. uh, I was at you know going through university at that stage and I uh, used to go up to Mullumbimby area and main arm actually I I, I had a, a lady friend there for many years and we what we years this in the eighties uh, mm-hmm. late seventies early eighties. Uh, we started, I mean, there's a lot of versions of Mullumbimby Madness. I suppose it was one of the first things that I helped work with the people that were developing a, our version. And that was definitely from traveling uh, South America and Asia uh, and, and picking things that we, um, we enjoyed and then hybridizing them, uh, stabilize, you know, sort of searching for mother and father parentage. And there's a lot of very uh, astute, um, people who um, who have decided for an alternative lifestyle um, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s in that area. And and there was a lot of, I suppose, exchange between, uh, quiet exchange, you know, because many people did it as a supplement for their income and, and uh, because there, there was not a lot of jobs at that stage in those years up there. And, um, you know, they did a good job. We... Uh, I think in Australia, we, we produce some of the best um, cannabis flowers uh, and, and cannabis genetics at that stage, you know, and I think there was a, a period where it, it slowed down and was just uh, relied on, on bringing seeds in from other companies and overseas and stuff. But I think in the early days, uh, Australia was uh, very much um, like America and, and like Canada, that they, they were big cannabis buffs. And the rest of the world is hashed up. Australia, actually, there there are a couple of um, noteworthy exports in terms of geneticists. There's another one we tend to hear a lot about having the first seed bank. Um, I'd love to hear your recount of uh, of Neville um, Schoenmakers and basically your works with him. Well, Neville and I, we met in Amsterdam. Um, He was half, excuse me, he was half, half Dutch, half Australian. Uh, and was uh, he started the Sensi Seed Bank. He actually started a, a, a company called The Seed Bank in 88. And I met him uh, in 89, 90, <clears throat> after he had some um, experiences with um, um, some problem, problematic experiences with expedition to, to America when he was in Perth. And uh, then Ben Dronkis took over the his seed bank at that time and, and it became the census seed bank which is what it's known as nowadays but neville was probably the the grandfather of all seed genetic uh, uh, hybrids so he was the first guy to actually commercialize it in holland and we have a lot we, we really owe it uh, he was a good friend of mine we worked together in the greenhouse and then mr nice seed company um <clears throat> we parted ways uh, when we went into the CBD crew, uh, I went in that with Howard Marks because we decided to put our time in the medical and he went on with uh, trying to develop some other stuff and then unfortunately he passed away last year. So um, that's a quick version, but I mean, he, he was definitely a very important character. Uh, uh, I was pre- we, we were having competitions when we lived in Amsterdam together and, and we were exchanging genetics, of course, and, and giving opinions to each other. Uh, we didn't really have um, peers at that stage. There, there were some good seed companies like Serious Seed Simon and 
there was Dave Watson and, and Rob Clark there. And there were, there were people that were very much in the know, but we were all sitting together, exchanging ideas then. And it was before the real big push of seed company. So there was, uh, there's a lot of genetic uh, development going on in, in the early, the late 80s, early 90s in, in Amsterdam, which I yeah. think that took the direction for all the seed companies after which. I mean, basically, the way that you know my research um, has led me to, to sort of see it, you were really just one of those pioneers that was in that right place, right time in Amsterdam, part of the coffee shop, setting up that coffee shop scene. And what followed was a string of <laughs> Cannabis Cup awards um, through the magazine High Times. Do you, you know, we... We know you're a very modest character, but can you talk to us about what that meant to you and what strains um, were the award-winning strains? And, and even, I'm just interested, you know, you, can you still today smell a particular strain and, and know exactly what that is and it takes you back to that that time? Um, yeah, okay, there's quite a few questions in that. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, I suppose uh, I'll answer them backwards. The, uh, yes, I can smell things. Uh, there's been a lot of cross-pollination since we started the building blocks, you know, the Northern Lights and the Skunk and the Haze and, the, uh, you know, sort of push. Um, I call them the building blocks. And, and nowadays, I, I know my varieties still to this day. I mean, I, it's critical mass. is pretty easy to identify Super Silver Haze, Black Widow. Um, I, you know, we changed the names to not infringe on other companies anymore, but... The, there's a big confusion in genet, generic names, you know. Actually, that's why we, we talk about the building blocks being, you know, those four sort of staples. Um, you know, there was a, there was a lot of um, good times in the 90s it, 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 with a lot of uh, exchange sitting at coffee shops at the end of the day, coming from our little holes in the ground where we kept private and... Uh, you know, used to sort of uh, exchange flowers and, and smell them and talk about them. We were very critical. It was not motivated by money at that stage. It was more motivated by finding something really uh, strong and something really uh, unique in flavour. And we didn't have the laboratories behind us to, to uh, sort of verify what we, our opinions were, but people loved certain things. And if they bought it, I mean, uh, we became... Family name, uh, family household names in in Holland, uh, Neville and I, because of those reasons. You know, at that stage, Neville was uh, developing Super Silver Haze, which was probably one seed out of about a thousand haze plants that we had to go. He, he went through. I mean, I sat with him for many, many days, smoking, testing, checking out, and uh, and I went on with the mango haze, for example, and. Um, you know, and, and so we, we both had different expressions. You know, it's, it's very similar to the wine industry or the olive industry. They're, they're, someone chose something that they enjoyed and other people went on with the job. And yeah. so we were lucky enough to be popular. Just so happened to be two Australians in, in Holland. Uh, it was kind of coincidental. There was a hell of a lot of refugees from America at the same time. Um, there was a lot of... Uh, it was a lot of... Um, um, non-monetary exchange at that time in the 90s. I call it the golden years in Amsterdam and it was really an interesting time and it was a really great time because, you know, you, you could get honest opinions uh, without, you know, someone wanting to better you and you they would better you by bringing a better flower to the table, you know, and it was kind of, oh, that opened up someone's eyes and that smell remembered, reminds me of, Hawaii and you know in the sixties and you know there's sort of things like that. But so so the, there's no actual when you say no money exchange a lot of the time. So it's just a community of people who were experimenting with um, breeding um, different strains and and basically trading flour with one another. You know, here try my new strain, I'll try yours, that kind of thing. Cafe society. It was pretty much that. I mean, we sat around, we take a beer. I mean. You got to remember, the growing the flower was illegal. Even in Holland to this day, it's still illegal. Mm. So you had to do that very quietly. So everyone had their little corner to go to, 
And at the end of the day, you would just sort of appear out of a, a manhole and, uh, and go to your favourite coffee shop and, and sit down. And then there would be the the Rob Clark. Uh, Rob Clark's a good friend of mine. He's written a lot of books. I think he's one of the better scientific uh, writers of our time. Uh, like Neville was a very, very fine geneticist uh, and, and had a particular selection that he favoured. You know, I have a different selection. I went into the widows and, and, and some of the heavy stuff and then into the CBD stuff. So we, you know, there's a lot of facets within the genetic uh, realm and, and it's mm. kind of, um, it's, uh, it's what turned us individuals on at that stage. There was no, no big company headhunting us or doing anything like that. So it's like wanting to do like a, a, you're into Pinot Noir or you're into Shiraz or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not, you know, not, not every day you want to drink red wine. Sometimes you want a beer, sometimes you want a white wine. So we, there was a lot of branching off and, and derivatives of strains that we, we gave to our friends. And then like Simon, for example, at Serious Seeds and, uh, Northern Light Five Haze. We gave him after we won a cup, and then he mixed the Carlingist into it, and that won a cup the following year. And the, you know, sort of, there were slight deviations, uh, I suppose. You know, Nebbiolo and, and Dolcetto and Barolo. <laughs> they're, they're they're very similar in my eyes. That I followed those, those three plants. And by the way, my favourite three plants. You know, uh, grapes and olives and cannabis. So. And I find a lot of uh, similarities between them all because um, as Australia will develop their cultivation side, which they, uh, I really recommend they do, and I don't really believe that they need to import any cannabis, <clears throat> I believe uh, that they will be up there in, 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 if they concentrate on the job rather than concentrate on the dollar and the stock market values and all of that sort of stuff, which I think at the moment is what's going on. You know. yeah. so, so where do you see Australia at the moment from a genetics perspective? Poof. Um, I, I think they hit a hollow um, in, in the 2000s. You know, they, they just relied on some Dutch companies like myself to, you know, a lot of Australians came over, picked up many things, and a lot of them still went uh, to Asia and tried to find sort of land races with, you know, or whatever they considered land rates or whatever. Um, I'm sure in, in little corners of Australia, there's some brilliant magic people doing some fantastic work. However, in the mainstream, I think they've relied on a, a lot of the seed companies. And the seed companies, I don't want to get in trouble here. Um, I would just like to say that not all seed companies make their own, keep their own mothers, make their own clones and produce their own seed still to this day. Uh, uh, there's no um, control over the seed companies, even though many people think that they've been legal for many years, they're tolerated. They're, if you don't get caught growing your THC plants, even though they've only got seeds in them, they're still over the 0.3 level and that makes them illegal. So the growing still you know, the whole industry is based on uh, uh, illegal growing uh, at this moment until uh, the Dutch government uh, allows a certain amount of people to grow for particular reasons, which they're doing now. It's taken them 30 or 40 years. You know, that experiment's been very clear to us many years ago. So uh, the thing is that I think every country can find genetic specialities that fit their country and fit the 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 criteria of what they're looking for. So um, I'm confident that there's a lot of very good breeders out there in Australia. It's just that I don't know if they're exactly in the right job at the moment. I think in Australia also it's, it's, uh, it's possibly different to some other countries where it's maybe, you know, you're on the equator, you're very much a sativa kind of uh, favourable area, whereas in Australia it's such a big country. There's so many different strains that could work in so many different locations, whether you're up in far north Queensland, for example, or down in Victoria, it's quite a different climate. And um, quite far. I mean, you've got the diversity that you need for genetic uh, uh, um, uh, diversity, because basically, you, you know, you're Asia at the top part, and and you're Europe at the bottom part. So, um, auto flowering uh, in the shorter seasons, uh, feminized seed. There's been uh, rampant in Europe because there's a lot of people just growing. They don't really want to breed or anything. And then there's the the pocket hobby 
semi-professional breeders who have, um, you know, sort of moved to mainly they're all indoor. It doesn't matter where they are because they're, they're doing controlled uh, pollinations and, and that usually means facility. So um, there's a lot in Switzerland where, where I live and, and uh, you know, we're now uh, able to work on THC varieties. So um, with the new licenses coming and all of those uh, kind of new constraints being lifted, it, 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 there's a lot of hope for um, um, very good stabilised genetics worldwide. Australia could just be another one of those countries that has the possibility to do it all, for sure. Yeah, well, there's, there's definitely, um, certainly in the, the legal market, I mean, uh, we talk about this idea of old vines in um, you know, the Barossa and in wineries language, but yeah. it's such a nascent industry that you know, it's really um, quite new. I, I'm still, I think, juries out a little bit about the extent to which genetics um, being grown in Australia are stabilized. I know there's been quite a little, um, quite a lot of variability with uh, products um, uh, that have come through to the market. But I just want to pick up on something that you talked about, how you said Australia, I mean, you, you have Asia up the top, Europe down the bottom. Um, for you know, people listening and, and sort of coming to genetics for the first time, can you maybe just talk through what, what, what cannabis plants thrive in a more European environment? What thrives closer to the equator? Um, can you talk us through some of that? Usually, you're talking about outdoor or greenhouse cultivation, basically, because indoor, it doesn't matter where you are. And yeah. You, you can talk all the climate. Um, in the outdoor uh, and greenhouse cultivation, um, the, the closer you are to the equator, uh, it's pretty much predominantly 12 hours light and 12 hours dark most of the year. And a plant needs 18 hours light to grow. Uh, it go, It's flowers at 12 hours. So... Near the equator, the principle is that you grow, like in Thailand, I have friends that have mother runes, they grow it up to a certain height and then they bring it outside to flower it because it's always 12-12. So when you go plus or minus 10 degrees above the equator or below the equator, you start getting the, the colder climates, the Afghani climate, and it's a shorter, uh, denser flower cluster kind of looking plant that looks like a very small miniature uh, Christmas tree. Whereas the ones close to the equator are a very long, thin leafed, very uh, airy uh, flower clusters in comparison to the indica, what we used to call indica and sativa. Now it's long leaf and short leaf and fat leaf. And, you know, because now they, they realize that there's a big genetic drift and there's been an exchange right through. I think the guys doing the genotype of, um, that's Rob Clark's crew, have been doing the genotype of, of cannabis for some time now. I've, have seen that the, the similarities are mainly due to the uh, sort of latitudes that, that plants are growing on. So colder climates usually a faster season, their shorter flowering season. They do the six to eight week flowering season, whereas uh, you can have four months, five months, six months flowering season for the sativas. So when you go to northern New South Wales, for example, you've got um, pretty much similar um, latitude as you have to say um, um, where are you in Asia you're probably Indonesia um, in that kind of you know that you where's northern well I mean <laughs> plus or minus I need to have a look at a map basically it's a bit early in the morning for me um, but uh, uh, basically within 10 degrees plus or minus you, you is where the sativa the haze the, the, that sort of family found. And then above that are the Kushas and the, the Afghani and the, the, um, the skunk developed in, in those sort of things. And then we, we put it all into an indoor room and there you can control climate and light as you want, depending on the, the, the type of seed that you want to breed. So, you know, basically Amsterdam um, in the early, late 80s, early 90s was a, a kind of a laboratory um, and I felt like a big bumblebee. I would go over to different sort of uh, continents, find something that I really liked. I mean, I can give you an example, like the widow, for example. Um, the, the Brazilian You're talking white widow, yeah? White, white widow. widow. Yeah. Yeah, I call it black widow now because everyone's confused the hell out of it. 
you know. <laughs> but the thing is that the, it, the father came from a Brazilian haze, uh, and, and which I met a guy in Colombia in Santa Marta in uh, Mountain Tirone, or Tyrone, or whatever. I think that's how you pronounce it. And they've been growing in Colombia in a family kind of uh, way for many seasons. So it was a really interesting uh, flavor and incredible um, uh, strength. And then the mother came from uh, Kerala in India, which was in um, also an incredible strong um, um, flower when you, you smoked it in you know the hippie days. And uh, and I brought that back basically in Holland, and we we started to combine and, and play around with the selection of males and females and see how they combine and see what you the offspring brought out and you know white widow was developed white rhino white shark they all came from adding something a little bit extra i mean medicine man which is white rhino was the afghan that we used uh shark was the skunk that we used once we had found the widow male and and the widow female so we were able to uh, you don't need a lot of plant selection I, like for example i've got six males and i have 30 females and I can make combine in different ways pedigree breeding from that and and uh, there's once you make a recipe that works every time you keep that 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 seed strain uh, being but, but when you were um so when you were say in Kerala um trying that that Indian mother um variety or when you're in in um Colombia doing your I guess sampling your research whatever you want to call it were you like hiking hiking <laughs> yeah and you're off on a mountain near goa or something and you're just kind of thinking you know this would really go well with like do you have those conversations as a geneticist or are you just enjoying that particular strain for yeah. what it is yeah probably i mean on the day that i had the revelation <laughs> i was probably enjoying it and um <laughs> and and i still do from time to time but the thing is that uh, i suppose um um it's a three-dimensional, uh, it's a bit metaphysical, the, the designing of a strain, because it's it's aromas. And the only way that I could possibly do that was um, at one stage, I got the idea that if you're putting in 50% Brazilian and 50% Indian, I would grow those pure first, and then I would mix them in a joint, 50-50. And I would kind of get an idea of the strength and the flavor, and and then hopefully, uh, sorry about that, and hopefully, um, um, basically understand the aromas, the flavors, the the effect from doing that. So I used to always grow pure, and then if it was a 25, 50, and a twenty-five skunk, you could make that in a joint, and you could actually understand the flavors. Yeah. So it was a bit rudimentary, but but it was definitely a, a way to see the future and design a project of, of aroma, because right. it's a it's a pretty unusual concept, you know. I love that. <clears throat> I think um, yeah, um, we had a lot of chefs that were very that they had a very good taste. You know, they they could identify things. So, and a lot of chefs smoke marijuana because it's a stressful job, you know, and and, and so they used to come after their their jobs or before the start of their jobs in Holland. And uh, we, we would, you know, sort of give them something to use that we were developing. And we're always uh, people who had a, a kind of a palate. Uh, I was always interested in giving them some flour to try and then seeing what their comeback was, you know, and, and that was a, that was that exchange that I talked about in, in Holland at that stage, you know, probably not like that anymore. I mean, I was there last week, a few weeks ago. It's not like that anymore. That exchange in how do you even find yourself in that situation in Kerala where you're just standing there? How, how do you find those people in the first place where you're kind of like, can you walk us through that? Actually, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, hunting land races or hunting whatever, as you said, they think it is. How, how do you even start? You, you land at Kerala Airport, for example, if that's even, I'm not sure if there's an airport. Madras. <laughs> Madras. But on a, I landed in Madras when it was called Madras and I bought an Enfield and uh, I was with a friend and we started to drive and to learn to teach ourselves how to drive 
uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we went down to Mahabiliporum. It's a small village where they make, they make chillums. It's very famous for making chillums. Uh, I didn't know that at that stage. It was the first time in, in you know, in India. And then, um, of course, there's all these sadhus and there's people smoking for the religious reasons. They were smoking. The Hindus do that. And, of course, went in Rome and I tried it. And it made me feel fantastic, actually, and uh, still does to this day. So uh, I thought, well, there's something really interesting about that. And then I would ask, uh, persistence prevails is my expression is when you want to find something, my friend, you will find it. It doesn't matter uh, uh, what doors close on you. You'll always be looking around or, or finding, uh, um, trying to find out the source if you're really interested, because the, that's the only way that you can actually begin at a, at a correct genetic point if you've never developed it yourself. So you have to go, uh, the most important thing about pedigree uh, genetic breeding is to find the best source possible. Yeah. And I remember when we were in South of India, um, uh, I was on Covland Beach and I had asked the guy who was running the hotel where we stayed uh, if we could get some something to smoke. And uh, this is in the, in the 80s. And he came with a, a, a folded piece of newspaper and uh, it was, you know, it looked like a, it kind of looked like about the size of a phone, and but it was all in this Hindi newspaper. And he opened it and it was like bull, bullet fingers, you know, uh, a bit like uh, uh, what you would think a tie stick looked like in the old days, you know, without the the, the mm. cotton around it. And the, the, it was like that. And we... So, of course, I'm pretty excited. It was pretty cheap and uh, smelled very toxic. And I remember with the guy I was with, we made a little joint and I lost 12 hours. I mean, I thought, wow, that's unbelievable. And it was so strong that, I, I mean, I, 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 I didn't know that I wanted to be a geneticist at that stage. I was just a traveller. And I remember hassling this guy who brought it until he showed us where to go uh, and we met the family who was producing it and they gave, I got some seeds and that was in a mountain station uh, above Kerala so we had to drive uh, I can't I would never find it again but uh, on that day in the early 80s uh, I wasn't going home until I found it so yeah you know yeah. it's just those, those sort of stories that you, they're accidental but later on become very important when you're looking for something so I suppose, you know, lateral thinking and, and keeping your ears open, uh, it, it's just the way to do it. And then, well, without it, we wouldn't have White Widow. So uh, yeah. I guess, you know, that that uh, that 12-hour time vacuum and the, and the Royal Enfield played their role. Um, I'd like to yeah. fast forward a few years, though, and go to a little bit more on the CBD crew side, which is taking us towards more, if you th- if you like, modern medicine and and a little bit of the work you guys did there in terms of high CBD genetics and um, really just get a, a snapshot of that. Okay. Um, that was motivated after, um, I, I suppose I've been very, very successful and so a devil at that stage and, and then Howard, we'd all joined together to make the Mr. Knight Seed Company and I'd moved to, I got headhunted and moved to Switzerland. And in that time, I was able to set up a big farm and we had nine farms producing and we were, making oil for the body shop. And it was a very interesting stage, but I was able to do a lot of uh, genetic work at that stage. So I was able to put out all the mothers and combine them with different fathers and stuff like that. And uh, I suppose um, um, in in that time, um, we thought maybe the THC side had been overdone. I mean, when I came up with White Rhino, people used to have whiteies and, and, and faint. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I took some pleasure in that, and so did Neville at some stage. And and it was not right. I mean, we probably made we were our own worst enemies, making strains too high in THC, and then we got a lot of backlash from that because you know they they started to say that young children were get psychosis and blah 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 blah, which you know in a certain percentage it, it's true, but they get it with aspirin as well. I mean, you know, there, there's a certain percentage of the population that should never use cannabis. And, and but the majority should 
in, in my opinion. Anyhow, we, we, we kind of reached that end of the road with THC, let's just say. And Howard and I thought, you know, it's been so good to us, this plant, that, that um, um, and I, I had, you know, sort of had some issues in Switzerland at that stage, and I thought to come out and try to rehabilitate my thinking of the cannabis plant to make it in the legal framework, to work in the legal, legal framework. And uh, at that stage, we were doing a lot of work with some new guys in the States, um, and we saw that there was a very interesting uh, application of CBD, but it was very, very early on. Most people thought CBD, we've been breeding that out for so many years. What do you want to put it back in for? What year is this? Uh, 2006, seven, 2006, 2007, I began this uh, idea. Uh, the project CBD crew uh, came out um, with a, a, um, a guy who had made a selection without knowing of a very pure CBD uh, female. When I joined up with him um, and the two girls, Liz and Lena, who soon became CBD angel, we call them, they worked for the company and they did, they did the exchange with all the patients and stuff. And what we decided was that the, the idea behind a medical strain uh, was to enrich to, to, the terpenes are very important. So I didn't want to come from hemp and go high in CBD. Uh, I wanted to go from traditional recreational strains, high in terpene, high in THC, and lower the THC and increase the CBD. So we needed to find pure parentage to be able to do that. And then we needed a laboratory to test what we were doing. Canna Foundation came to my aid and they helped uh, develop uh, the at that stage, there was no one doing laboratory tests. It was very difficult. And I was my aim was to create a series of strains, one-to-one, -one, THC to CBD, so people in all corners of the world who were sick had access to be able to grow something for themselves. Uh, it was the only reason I took uh, uh, the, the, the tact of doing feminized seed because medical patients didn't have time to go through males and females. So we thought that was the right application for producing one-to-one -one and, and uh, feminized seed. And then, of course, I didn't want to monopolize, so I offered that uh, enrichment process to all of the existing seed companies, Dutch Passion, Paradise Seed, Greenhouse, Sirius, TH Seeds, uh, and the list goes on. And we had about 16 of those companies, all accepted. I only limited to two plants. And then I we, it took about a year to enrich their two mothers. So actually every seed company sent a couple of mothers that they uh, never normally shared with another seed company. And we enriched it, gave them back the seed and their plant and let them test it. And if they were satisfied, then they had to sign up to say that they would explain to the patient exactly what's inside and, and everything was a scientific seed company. It was tested, laboratory, uh, uh, Canna Foundation verified all the results. So I suppose it was the very first scientific seed that changed the, the market considerably. I mean, CBD wasn't even known really in 2007 to 2009. And uh, slowly it became, and it is now probably one of the biggest industries. So it's definitely the father of that enrichment process. Uh, and, and we didn't actually know that it was going to work at that stage. You know, mm. when you're doing innovations, you're not, not all innovations work, you know, and some people were going, but what do I, nothing happening to me. And a sick person would go, my God, I can see, you know, and, and so there was a really big difference in the effect uh, of one-to-ones. Uh, and uh, luckily we just pursued it. And, and um, I used a lot of Mr. Nice females to hybridize up with the, the CBD pure parent and, uh, they worked, you know, we verified it all and we put out a, a scientific uh, project called the CBD crew. And uh, I, don't, I, I think I sold more seed in the first year in that company than all of the time with Greenhouse or Mr. Nice or anything. I mean, it was incredible. That's incredible. So yeah, was, I guess probably the most important question, I, I'd say from a geneticist's perspective or someone who's been around the block, let's say, what are the most important things that you're looking for in a strain, in, in a plant? 
but what are you looking for for patients, especially considering Australia is, is a very medical uh, scene? What's, you know, we hear about minor cannabinoids, CBG, CBC, CBN is very, and terpenes, but from your perspective, what are we looking for? You know, um, it's a very, very complicated question you're asking there, Mitch. Um, the thing is that um, the whole reason to come from a whole plant, uh, um, the premise was that nature had the recipe. We just had to replicate it in a natural way rather than synthesize mm. it in the laboratory. And I still believe that whole plant extract uh, is the, the, the answer. And um, replicating, putting isolates together and, and turpins and making it in a factory with it sterile. Yes, that's a traditional way for pharmaceuticals to, to do those sort of things, but it's not the way to produce a plant. So when you found, so the, the whole thing was we, we went through a lot of plants and then we tried them all with different patients and we slowly came to a certain set of plants that were working for certain problems like MS or muscular seizures or inflammation. And we had a plan for each one of those that uh, we saw on our rudimentary uh, uh, research that these people were having a response to. And so we went on based on that. And we had so many people volunteering to use the product, the flower and that to see if it worked. And then we made tinctures and soft gels and slowly, you know, we slowly developed those sort of ways of getting the right, I mean, the hardest part about all of this was not, um, was first of all, identifying the plant with the CBD and the THC. And, and I prefer to say that I prefer to grow a whole plant, a natural plant, rather than half uh, a medicine, which, you know, just a CBD plant or just a THC plant, they, they don't serve that purpose. So, so when we made the tinctures with the, the, all of the different um, combinations of hybrids that we'd made, so we, we would clone, a, 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 say, for example, a CBD Yummy 2. We would clone that, grow it in, in, in flower it, and then use the same flower to make the extractions. And then we, we started to understand that, wow, they're quite powerful for that particular uh, condition. And, uh, and, and things developed like that. And so I, I suppose um, it, it was very, very basic kind of research. And it's not like what, you know, compound pharmacists and pharmacists need to, to have the data, but it was based on that and, and it worked and it still does to this day. And, and there's certain varieties that work better for inflammation as they do for seizure or muscular uh, uh, shaking or, you know, things like that. So, so I still believe that, that um, there's a plant out there that will work better than just CBD mixed with MCT oil, for example. Um, that works to a level, but it doesn't work all the way, okay? And uh, in the plant, it works all the way. I can see the difference. But I can't prove it just yet. You know, there's a, still a hell of a lot of data that we have to compile to be able to go to the scientific realm. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's the um, the interesting, I guess, the, the fact that CBD and I'm sure other um, compounds within the plant are now being studied for their you know, multifaceted um, uh, component part. I mean, the attributes rather. So you have, you know, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, all these different, um, uh, you know, positive benefits, but you can, you know, take away a layer of the onion and, and sort of go a bit deeper and say, well, hang on, let's, let's look at this particular strain for, yeah, inflammation or antibacterial, this one for antibacterial. So I, I think that's the, the next level that um i know australia is further behind europe but i'm sure even everyone in europe is excited about that emerging research that's coming through on that the uh, the the amount of phd students sorry Andrew, it's budding, but the amount of phd students that are now working on cannabis specifically in european universities is is um sort of um propelling us into the future really well and with every little tiny um, um, scientific verification, we're able to start going down roads that we didn't even know we could go into before. You know, uh, CBG, CBN, the sleep, C CBC, 
uh, things that you've ne- even turpin, beta carotenol, for example, it acts like a cannabinoid, but it's a, a, it is classified as a turpin. Um, myrosine, you know, uh, we start to uh, slowly take away all of the individual uh, compounds that are, are, are all together on a plant, and we do our tests with them, we see where the application is. That's uh, a slow process. It's a very big trial and error. There's a huge amount of uh, people involved now, and there's a, 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 as big as your head can think kind of paradigms to, to, to put the plant into or the, or the crude oil or whatever you're going to do it. One thing that we have come to the, the kind of consensus now is that if you have uh, uh, basically, it's a Richard Simpson oil. If you have 20% THC and 20% CBD and above, you can treat a hell of a lot of different issues. So the concentration level is something really interesting for certain uh, diseases. When you want to do the wellness stuff, you don't need those concentrations. You only need three to five, six, 10% maximum, you know. Um, concentration doesn't always mean that it's helping you more. This is a, a big fallacy. Sometimes a, 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 a whole plant extract that's only 6% versus a, an isolate at 25%, doesn't, it doesn't do half of the job that the 6% one does because they've got all of the other little compounds on there that, that, the, that we haven't verified yet, but they make a huge difference when the application- Working synergistically. Yeah. Mm. So the entourage effect is still a very dominating uh, theory. And, and I'm sure that uh, one day, we're, once we've exhausted a lot of these things, we'll be able to see what we were talking about, which is pretty much, um, I always look at Mist and I Seed Bank for, as my opinion company and the CBD crew as the scientific one where I could prove everything we did. And so uh, it's it, it good to know that your opinion was on the mark for certain things. But to verify what you really do nowadays, it has to move into the scientific world. And there's no doubt about you need to know what, what, what other things are there. You don't want pollutants and pesticide, insecticide, heavy metals, those sort of things. You can't tolerate them, and a lot of people have them on, uh, even if they never use them. They they're in the water tables and things like that. So it's very important not to get the sick more sicker when they're using a, a good product. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm very for the regulation of those sort of things. You know. And now I'm very mindful of time because uh, we know that we've got yep. you've got important things to be at. But um, I did want to ask. We we usually sign off with one question, which is how long until. <laughs> recreational but i don't think that um might interest our viewers as much in australia as much well you can answer that if you like but more importantly how long do you come back to australia to continue your genetics work <laughs> uh i'm continuing my genetics work i'm just not in australia but at the moment uh, um uh, you know obviously this pandemic has put a spanner in the works and and it's not as easy to travel as it used to be um and I don't think it's going to get easier for the next year or two. Um, luckily, uh, I'm working with two companies, um, one in Italy and one in, in Switzerland, and they've both been given a THC license. Now, that happened in the last two months. So I might be old, but I'm very excited at the moment about the possibilities of going further in, in and using all of my arsenal of genetics that have been stored in fridges, but I was only allowed to use CBD ones and you know, so it's a very exciting time, again, for genetics. I don't say that we're going to make the wheel, but we'll certainly make it uh, frictionless uh, as we go into being able to work on full plant stuff. So it, it is a very exciting time, and I'm sure in Australia it's going to follow suit with that. Uh, I'm just hoping that, that um, obviously, um, the government's, uh, turn to some very knowledgeable people who have got a lot of practical experience to actually make uh, regulations because that's been the only huge problem uh, and hold up in Europe. This Nobel food regulation and stuff is, is, is very nonsensical at the moment. It feels like people who've got no idea about all of the things are in charge of people who have got the full knowledge about all the things. So 
that you were describing i i have a, a word for them they're called lawyers <laughs> uh, no. yeah there's a there's a few people that share that sentiment in australia as well i think so um but you um, know, st stalling tactics that governments do are making decisions still and when you don't make a decision that's a decision and you have to realize that that sometimes when they don't know the governments don't show fear but they they stall yeah, and, and so that for me means that they they know that there's something beneficial there, but they need to be able to put a control around it so they don't let it just go to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And and that's a really that's where we are at this moment in time. Yeah, and, and, and it can't, yeah, it can't affect their re-election chances as well. So that's always factoring into it too. But. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sorry, we're all getting all cynical here, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna we'll, we'll pick this up. Sure, if you're agreeable, Scott, we'd love to check in in I don't know six months or something. There's there's so much more of the story that we could unpack. Um, you know, you mean two crops? <laughs> two. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back in two crops. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I should know a lot more by then, and uh, you know, I, I'm happy to talk uh, uh, genetics anytime. Uh, I, I'm happy to talk about the Australian scene. I, I would like to move forward. I just hope, uh, I don't mean to be cynical, but I, I do hope um, that you guys are successful in educating people about things that maybe uh, were in the dark or in the grey areas beforehand. And, and that it's time for them to know that this plant has never killed anybody, that this plant had offering so many things that, that we are right in front of us. We just have to identify it and not be scared to use it and, and put it into applications that, uh, are completely correct for it, you know, and that's a, a process. But we really need people of all walks and walks of life involved in this now, you know. Yeah, well, and, I mean, uh, it's, it's been around as long as we have, and we actually have it yeah, built well, in a lot, a lot longer. And we I always, I, I think this is the 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 next T-shirt I make is that um, the sick saved us because the sick people have basically been the biggest push to get the compassionate grounds to work on cannabis in America yeah. and fall away. And I'm hoping that it doesn't need that in the future. I mean, research and development and, and understanding that these things, they, they, they were the red flag and they really pushed us very strongly in that direction. So I'm hoping that the healthy and the sick can join hands and, and try to you know, cure each other, whatever problems they have. It's a, such a beautiful sign off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Thank you, Scott. We, we, um, we look forward to the next one. And until then, take care. We'll speak soon. Thank you very much, guys. I wish you all the success. Yes, Scott. Thank Cheers. you. See you later. Bye.